Welcome to APAC Weekly, a showcase of conversations on the APAC network with Asia-Pacific's brightest minds. I'm Oriel Morrison. In this episode, transport's radical transformation, solutions to the global housing crisis. Did COVID accelerate sustainability? The first electric vehicle was created back in 1832, but cheap and abundant fuel meant the internal combustion engine dominated car manufacturing throughout the 20th century. Now we've turned a full circle. The cost of fossil fuels to the environment has resurrected that 200-year-old invention to the point where it's now our most important transport transition. I'm joined now by Peter Newman, Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University. Professor, welcome. So good to have you with us today. G'day. <laughs> G'day to you too. Now, EVs are, are, of course, a major part of the fight against climate change. How far away are we right now, today, from having more of them on the road than petrol-powered vehicles? Well, there are some countries in the world where 80% of the market are now electric vehicles. Uh, they're rapidly growing in places like China, where they're replacing their oil very quickly. And uh, we've now got electric tuk-tuks in mm. India and Thailand. We've got electric boater boaters in Africa. We've got uh, electric buses and electric trains everywhere. So it is taking off. It's growing at about 17% a year. And uh, by the next five-year period, I think you'll find that there will be no more petrol and diesel cars and trucks on the market. You mentioned what's happening across, you know, places in Asia and in Africa and other parts of the world. Uh, with electric tuk-tuks, that's one thing. But in so many of these countries, specifically uh, in the Asian region, there is, you know, roads which are absolutely dominated by motorbikes. Is that transfer, you know, from electric, from uh, the internal combustion engine, from oil, from gas into electrics going to happen that quickly? Yes, it is. And you'll find it quite dramatic because they're quite easy to fit into the system uh, and they are so easy to repower. There's In China now you can get little plug-ins at all the shops for the electric motorbikes. So the, the two-seaters are taking over very quickly and, that's, uh, th and they're cheap. They are very cheap to run, of course, and if you've got PV on the rooftop, it's free. So, so when are we going to see price equal price, sort of one for one? You know, you transfer in your, your gas or your oil or your petrol-powered vehicle and you, and you come out with an electric vehicle. There are some data that suggest it's already there if you consider the ongoing costs. Mm. Uh, it will pay for itself very quickly. It's definitely more expensive up front. And that upfront cost is coming down very rapidly as the battery costs come down. So they're all proceeding in the same direction uh, so that the upfront cost is likely to be equivalent by 2025, certainly, and even 2023 is being talked about. Wow, so by next year, we're likely to have an equivalent cost. Um, you know, one of the issues, of course, is, is batteries. We're seeing a lot of information when it comes to batteries, the weight of batteries, the size of batteries, all of those sort of things when we're talking about this type of transition. How much further do we need to go to make this sustainable, to make it scalable, given the resource situation out there, where, of course, there is a finite supply? 
Well, already, if you have an electric vehicle, you'll find it is lighter than a petrol or diesel-powered vehicle because it doesn't have the great big heavy engine in it. All you've got is a battery. It's both the power source and, and the fuel source, if you like. So you don't need a lot of the gear that, and there are very few moving parts, so it's it doesn't break down very easily. It's it's a it's a much better vehicle, and the lightness of the batteries is the magic of the lithium-ion battery. It is both very powerful but also very light, and that is why we now have electric vehicles rather than in 1832 when they were only had lead-acid batteries and so on to to use. Mm. We, we really have come a full circle when we look back at, at you know, what they were doing in, in 1832. What do you see as the biggest issue you know, with this transition as we move? And of course, as we've just talked about, innovation has sped up and it certainly has sped up during the COVID-19 pandemic. What are the issues that we could well face in the next five to 10 years? Well, it's all about servicing. Uh, that means recharge points uh, and being able to service the electric vehicle rather than a petrol or diesel one. None of this is difficult. There are already market forces at play that are enabling recharge, high speed and low speed all over the place. And as soon as these vehicles are out on the road, you'll find all kinds of clever people are setting up businesses to help service them and make them in and, and enable them. So the, the key thing for me is that they these big batteries on vehicles can become part of the grid in servicing it enabling it so you can get money back by plugging your vehicle in when you're not using it and it helps the grid now that all hasn't been worked out properly yet so that's the next big challenge for the grid operators to work out how electric vehicles fit into this but the market is going bananas and uh, we'll have no problems about having lots of them out there all ready for the utilities to use. Where do hydrogen vehicles fit into this, Professor? You know, obviously they are behind where we are at in terms of innovation um, with uh, electric vehicles, but how does this fit into the, into the mix going forward? I don't see much role for hydrogen going forward. It's basically lost the race uh, and it's, it's pretty obvious why you need to not just have a hydrogen vehicle that's tootling down the road. You've also got to be able to refuel it. And that hydrogen needs to be transported and stored there. And that's the hard part. We already have an electric grid you can plug into. So why not use that when you've got a cheaper option already? So the hydrogen fuel cell vehicles are three times the price and they're likely to stay there and they are not fitting into a whole new system because the system is too expensive and too difficult to provide. Uh, it used to be thought that the big trucks and big freight trains and so on would need to be hydrogen fuel cells, but not. The, now the lithium ion batteries are all being purchased by the big mining companies for mm. their big trucks and their big trains. These are working and they're cheap. So why do it? It's, it's, the hydrogen fuels will be needed in industry. They'll be needed for ships and planes, but not on land transport.
For the better part of a century, Australia's policymakers had a plan for social housing. In the early 1970s, the government was building about 1,000 houses a month for low-income families. In 1976, that dropped to 400 a month, and it's now sitting at around 100 to 150 houses, while the population has more than doubled since the 70s. Addressing the existing massive deficit and attempting to manage the forecast need is one of the greatest challenges facing governments and society today. Nicole Gurren joins us now, Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney. Professor, the recently elected government has emphatically stated it will address the social housing crisis. What is the magnitude of that task as we stand here today? Well, look, the research evidence suggests that we need right now to address current requirements for social housing. We need to be building 450,000 dwellings, that's for the current need. Over the next 20 years, we need to expand that out to 750,000 new homes for people on very low and low incomes. So if those sort of numbers are out there right now, you know, Labor's put forward a $10 billion housing future fund. That's not going to get anywhere close to that. I mean, that's going to build about 30,000 homes over the course of five years. Look, it's an inch in the right direction. The income from the fund is, as you say, um, earmarked to build up to 30,000 homes, 10,000 a year over the next three years. Of that uh, 30,000, 10,000 will be in the affordable sector, so not people on very low incomes, but the key workers who are also missing out at the moment on the housing market. But yeah, if we were to be seriously looking at trying to even get somewhere close to where we were at in the mid-90s, we'd be looking at at least tripling the amount of social and affordable housing that um, we were constructing. So we'd be looking at thirty to 40,000 dwellings per year at a minimum mm. just to try and get back to where we were at in the mid-1990s. That, of course, would need to be ramped up even further if we were going to seriously address the unmet housing need in Australia. Talking about the numbers that we've just been discussing, what's your best workaround of the problem to actually fix this, come up with some kind of solution? Look, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, misconceptions and misunderstandings about the housing system and the housing market that one of the first things to say is that investing in social and affordable housing actually does absolutely nothing to the value and the price of private housing in the market. If we're worried about first homeowners getting into, um, into owner occupation or moving into buying their own home, then we do need to look at the factors that have driven house price inflation over the past three decades. And that is an important thing for governments to deal with. But even without worrying about first homeowners, um, aspiring first homeowners, there's a crushing need to address the deficit of social housing. Now, social housing is provided by the government or provided by non-profit housing providers. So it, it's, it's actually completely neutral when it comes to impacting the value of homes to buy or rent in the market. 
You've suggested before that one solution, you, know, you talked about first home buyers, um, you know, that is a different segment of the market, but building some kind of housing development, which is specifically set aside for first home buyers, similar to the way we have you know, retirement villages and, and the, the way the housing system is set up for retirees. Is, is this a feasible solution? Is this a solution that the governments are likely to embrace? Look, it's an obvious solution. It's not addressing the barriers facing first home buyers is not necessarily as simple as providing for um, retiree accommodation in as much as we're not talking about special types of housing designs, for instance, or design compromises that can first home buyers into the market. We're more saying that a proportion of new homes when they're built as part of new developments need to be set aside and offered to the market at a price that first home buyers can afford. So the idea associated with setting aside a proportion, say 15% as occurs in South Australia, you know, it could be 25% as occurs in many parts of the world, we're not asking the developers or the builders to lose money on that housing product. We simply need to make sure that we quarantine enough of those homes for first home buyers so that they're able to enter home ownership. And we can do that by requiring developers to include a proportion of affordable home purchase homes as part of their new developments. And we can add to that schemes such as the schemes that the uh, that the Labor government actually promised as part of their election platform, and that is a shared equity model mm. where a government or non-profit partner takes on part of the equity of the home purchase, thereby reducing the deposit required to finance the home and reducing the overall debt. Mm. And as the household's um, conditions or incomes improve over time, they're able to purchase back that equity share. So, Professor, you've done a huge amount of research on this. Um, and, and when you look at social housing in particular, uh, sort of moving away from first home buyers necessarily in, in that specific category, we know that there's a need. We know that there's a significant need with the deficit and the future need. We're talking about 750,000. You know, that's a huge number. The government knows this. They can see your research as much as we can. What is the catalyst going to be for actually getting these houses to be built? We've We've wasted the last three decades on an experiment that was basically an idea and almost an economic philosophy that the market is best placed to solve society's needs, including housing needs. Now, to some extent, for many Australians, that's proven to be true. And in fact, we saw as government retreated from active involvement in social housing provision, there was no drop off in terms of private market activity in the in in relation to housing construction in fact according to the market cycle so when house prices went up we saw housing construction increase when house prices contract contracted so too did housing construction and so while we've got a housing system that's very responsive to the demands of the market. We don't have a housing system that's responsive to the needs of people on very low incomes and, and, and more broadly to population growth and change as well. So we do need to step up with policy commitments, with subsidy 
for social and affordable housing construction and with a policy framework that makes sure that just as we set aside land for roads and for parks and for social infrastructure, that we also set aside development opportunities for social and affordable housing. We make sure our policy frameworks support that and we provide adequate funding subsidy as well. New technologies are transforming the finance sector and reshaping the future of the investment environment. Cryptocurrencies, fintech and the associated regulations required to keep pace with the changes make this a very dynamic space globally. Michael Gilmore is an expert on the subject and he joins me now from Singapore. Michael, welcome. Let's start with fintech. What have been the biggest changes to the sector powered by new technologies that have emerged during the last few years? I mean, it's incredible. They're, it's spreading across like every area of, of finance. It's pushing into areas you'd never have thought. So, I mean, we all know that we can get finance apps on our phone now, and we all know about cryptocurrencies, but it spreads beyond there. I mean, the, the use of, of UX, UI, you know, user experience, user interface, through to areas even of accounting and corporate governance uh, and things like this. It's, in many ways, it's, it is opening up the world of finance and making it much more accessible to, to everyone. The, the big question comes about whether everyone is actually ready for those changes yet. So what do you think is next? What's the next big shift coming? Well, I do think it's that spread. It's that spread into all kinds of areas. We'll all be using more apps now on our phone that manage our daily money that we then invest into. I, I think there will be DeFi coming into those apps as well. So that the use of cryptocurrencies into those apps will, will increase. I know that's not a popular view this year, given the way the markets have gone in cryptocurrency, but that will increase because in the end, much a lot of what we look at in finance is a form of a contract. And that other great name for, for blockchain is smart contracts. So that will increase over time. But I think it's that other area. It's the things we're not expecting. It's things like, you know, corporate secretarial services, accounting services, all this stuff that's really kind of complicated and hard to deal with has got no UX UI at the moment. And that will come into it. And I think that's a big change. It'll, it'll get into every area of our financial lives within, within five years. Well, you touched on it there. So how can we expect blockchain to ramp up in these other areas? Well, I think it becomes through individual contracts, individual areas, bit by bit. We'll see. Sometimes we won't even know it's blockchain. Sometimes it'll actually just be the replacement of those contracts behind the scenes. But more than that, I think what we'll see is as a user, as a customer, we'll see things getting easier. We'll just see those sort of one sign things. I think we all got used to that during uh, the pandemic, right? That beforehand, none of us knew how to sign something on our, on our iPad. And then, you know, by the end of it, we're all quite happy just ticking things on the iPad and sending a signature across. That can extend it to all kinds of places. What would you say gamification is doing in the world of finance? Yeah, it's doing both sides. I mean, it, it's definitely bringing more people in. It definitely makes it more enjoyable. I mean, you know, kind of ticking a box and you just let it go and you sign a thing and then you let it go is kind of dull. But yeah, if, if kind of fireworks spark and all that stuff, it does make it more enjoyable to get involved, uh, which is in essence a good thing to, to help democratize the experience, to make it more accessible because a lot of people stayed out of finance traditionally because they didn't feel it was for them. They didn't feel it was making them welcome. The problem is that, of course, the, the education hasn't happened first, and that's where gamification needs to also be applied, is, is into education. Um, you know, in the, in the awards we run, one of the award winners last year, or this year rather, uh, was actually study of the, the gamification of education of finance and showing that it really works. 
that the improvements in people's understandings and behavior about finance improved with a bit of gamification into the education course. Well, you've spoken about the great change over the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic, but where do you expect us to be in, say, five years' time? It's, it keeps accelerating. I think definitely there is no slowdown on, on the speed of growth. Uh, you know, we'll see more apps, we'll see it in, in more places, more products being offered to more people, which at heart is a good thing. But that's why it makes the case for education even more important. Everyone developing these apps needs has a certain responsibility to educate. But I think also government, schools, parents, everyone involved, every stakeholder needs to think about, okay, how aware are my customers of the, the downsides? I mean, uh, Nicholas Nassim Talib, the writer of Black Swan, has a wonderful phrase where he says, I would never walk across a river that's four feet deep on average. And it's just a great point because it's just, it shows the risks can, that can be there without you seeing them. And those kinds of concepts, get people understand those, it'll really change people's behavior and then they can use the democratization of, of FinTech and all the apps they're going to be seeing. The COVID-19 pandemic spurred some significant change in our lives when it comes to where we live and work, how we travel and how we shop. But new research shows the pandemic also made us more sustainable. Joining us now is Professor Francisca Veda, Senior Lecturer at the University of Queensland. Francisca, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about your research. Well, it was a pretty extraordinary research project um, that was initiated by a couple of experiences that me and my colleagues all over the world made because COVID did make us more sustainable because we got all to the point where we um, felt like, oh, we're not traveling anymore. How great is that? So how sustainable this is? And um, so we picked up from there and looked into different areas around climate change related issues and sustainability. And we try to explore people's um, opinion and their feelings toward climate change related issues. But most importantly, we try to um, ask people if they feel they made any changes during COVID and if they want to stick with it mm. after COVID. <laughs> so, so what were the most surprising findings from your research? Well, I think the most surprising finding was um, that people feel very responsible and very aware about sustainability. So that sustainability apparently is already something that we call a social representation. So something that is out there that works for people as something they can relate to when they make their decision making in shopping in uh, choosing a car or their bike. So making all these um, kind of behavior related decisions. And um, so that was very um, surprising and um, yeah, very positive, a very positive and a pretty amazing result from the study that we could see that people um, started to evaluate and to talk about their behavior during COVID as being more sustainable. So that tells us a lot about their climate change awareness. Um, and by the same time that apparently sustainability has emerged as um, a bit of a value or core value or um, norm in our culture, at least. Mm. Is this what you mean then when, when you say that sustainability has essentially taken on a whole new meaning since the pandemic? Um, kind of. I think um, still corporates um, have done an amazing job in pre-framing or pre-setting what we um 
what we understand what sustainability is. So I think years or even decades of environmental and corporate social responsibility and sustainability communication from corporates um, and from industry have done their job in telling us what is better behavior, what is worse behavior, how we can be more sustainable with buying certain products or using certain services. Um, but by the same time, I think COVID brought us to the point where um, this notion of care that sustainability stands for evolved more intrinsically. So it came from the within because we we were more conscious, we started to do more cooking, we spent more time with our family and our core family, we started to get into the space of supporting our neighbors and um, created a bit of a community. And so all these developments, I think, show very clearly that um, these decades of sustainability reporting, they are still there, um, a certain norm has been introduced into our society, but by the same time with our individual behavior um, changing, we felt, well, this is actually something we can take on and we can be responsible for. Mm. You know, of course, during the pandemic, we had these shortages in, in supermarkets and, and certainly made people more aware of the security, I, I suppose, suppose, of food. Is this part of the changes in eating habits that you found as a result of your research? During COVID and the related restrictions, there was a lot of um, thinking about limitations and a lot of thinking about risk and um, anxiety that was caused and um, I think a bit of insecurity in all areas of our life. But by the same time, I think sustainability or the sustainability-related behaviour was something where people felt very safe with and they explored it as something that is more exciting, something where they can do different things, they can change and be part of a transformation process themselves. Thank you for joining us on APAC Weekly. I'm Oriel Morrison. To stay across the important conversation shaping our future, visit us at apacnetwork.com.